There is a passage of Scripture, believe it or not, that goes along with what had just happened. <clears throat> now, I know you probably didn't expect that when you were coming to church today, but um, the disciples, uh, they had this ongoing battle with each other all the time. They like to argue a lot. <clears throat> it, it feels good to win, doesn't it? Yeah. Right? I mean, be honest. It feels it's better to win than lose, emotionally speaking, right? We cheer for our team. Um, how many of you are competitive? Okay, I see a few hands in the air. The rest of you are liars. <clears throat> I'm borderline competitive. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm, I might push the line in competitiveness. Um, <clears throat> I don't care what game it is. It could be Candyland. I am trying to win. Because if you're going to play a game, you might as well play to win the game. <clears throat> we, like, we like winning. And uh, the disciples liked winning as well. Or at least that's my my take on them. <clears throat> We're in the Gospel of Mark, and we've been following how Mark has laid out his gospel, <clears throat> one of the underlying questions that he's been trying to answer is, who is Jesus? And so we've gotten little pictures of Jesus along the way. <clears throat> Mark spends more time telling us about what Jesus does than what Jesus says. Matthew and Luke, they fill in a lot of the verbiage on Jesus' teaching. Mark really concentrates on giving us a picture of Christ through his uh, ministry, through his active um, engagement with people and active engagement with his disciples. And we've had little pictures of the disciples all along, and you know, sometimes they seem like they're really close to understanding who Jesus is, and other times they just totally miss the mark. And so uh, along the way, we, we know from our position in time, we know the whole story. We know that, that Jesus' goal is <clears throat> he is here to offer us forgiveness of sins, and the way that he does that is to be a suffering servant, and he ultimately ends up dying on a cross, is buried uh, in the ground, but God vindicates him and raises him from the dead. We, we are privileged to know that information as the reader of the Gospel of Mark. <clears throat> the disciples don't know that yet. And so they're, tr they're trying to figure out what Jesus is doing and what he is saying in, in his teaching to them, and sometimes they get it and sometimes, well, not so much. Along the way, Jesus foreshadows, he predicts what we call the passion. He predicts that he's going to uh, be betrayed, he predicts that he's going to suffer, he predicts that he's going to die, and he predicts that he's going to be raised from the dead. He does that three times in the Gospel of Mark. We talked about the first time back in the spring, <clears throat> and today I want to read the account where he, where he gives them the second passion prediction. So we're in the Gospel of Mark uh, in chapter 9, so if you want to turn in your Bibles there, and we pick up the story in uh, verse 30. Mark writes it this way. <clears throat> they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, 
because he was teaching the disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you guys arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. They liked to win. They liked that position of prominence. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them, and taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. That's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so we've, we have uh, agreed that we like to win. Com- competition is part of... Uh, our nature. There's nothing wrong with competition. There is nothing wrong with a healthy uh, ambition, drive, motivation. It's, it's through competition and determination that we learn a lot of lessons in life. It's how, it's, it's, it's how we uh, figure out how to proceed forward sometimes. Sometimes we need to, f- to know that, hey, you know what, I didn't do that so well, and they just beat me at whatever it was. And if I want to improve myself, there is a healthy sense where competi- competition and that ambition and drive helps us to learn something new to improve a skill, to, to get better. <clears throat> so I don't want you to hear any of this as Jesus uh, telling his disciples that ambition is bad. But he does caution them. He, he does give them a warning. I think Jesus recognizes that sometimes competition in our drive, we can cross the line with it. I think Jesus realizes that sometimes the motivation of our heart in our ambition crosses the line and it becomes a negative thing. So that we, um, <clears throat> we become self-promoters. We argue about who's number one, who's the greatest. I mean, it starts when we're... Uh, if you have siblings, it starts in your home. You know, there's a little jostling back and forth between siblings. Mom likes me better than you, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And it continues on to the playground. And it doesn't stop when we graduate from high school. It continues on into uh, academia and the workplace. We're always tussling back and forth, trying to figure out where we rank. Now, we live in a me-first world. Me, 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 me. It's all about me. It's all about my position. It's all about me improving myself. And, and when we get locked in to uh, self-promotion, you get the word self. 
as part of the biggest sin of humanity, Jesus recognizes that sometimes we can take ambition and competition too far and we forget what it's about. We forget that it's a healthy way to learn things and we think that it's a way to elevate our status uh, in the world. Now, the world believes that, that all of that is true. The, the me first world is that you have to beat down your neighbor so that you can improve your own status. And so the argument on who's the greatest is one that is, it's okay. And so we see that in schools, in competition for uh, grades and for scholarships. We see that in competition to get on the sports team. Did you make the team or did you not make the team? Uh, we see it <clears throat> in, the, in the workplace where you're trying to climb the corporate ladder and, and when you cross the line from healthy ambition into unhealthy ambition, then you're willing to um, improve your own status at the expense of a coworker or a neighbor or a friend. We see it in the political arena. People are more than willing to trash the, the other side so that they can have some power grab and control. The world sets up ambition and competition as the means, the way to gain uh, status, notoriety, uh, but it's really about power and control. And where it really becomes a negative for us is when we buy into the world's definition and we begin to define our own sense of worth based on where we rank in the system, whether or not we're number one or not. You know, there's only number one. And, and so you, you, if you achieve the number one rank, there's already, always somebody who's coming up and trying to knock you down at any cost. And so when we wrap our identity and our value in whether or not we're winning or losing, that can be a very uh, depressing thing for us. And so you can read articles and look at statistics that the <clears throat> overemphasis on getting ahead and being number one is one of the things that is driving the depression rates up because we get so locked into thinking that we're nothing um, that it's doing something to our collective psyche. And Jesus comes and he notices that the disciples have some of that going on and he wants to challenge us uh, on this. The pressure to the the pressure to be the best is crushing the souls of, souls of our kids. Uh, the pressure to get ahead at work is challenging people to compromise on their values. The pressure to control the system causes people to crucify the character of other people so that we get what we want. It's uh, crippling, it, it's heavy, and Jesus came so that we didn't have to carry that weight. Jesus died so that we could be freed from living with all of that pressure. Now remember, Jesus does not say that competition and ambition are bad things, but these are not the things that define you in his kingdom. These are not the things that give you honor or privilege in the Lord's kingdom. 
He, he came to tell us that your worth before God has nothing to do with worldly success. Somebody needed to hear that this morning because we're locked into this pattern of thinking that we're nothing when we don't measure up on the scale that the world puts out there for us. So Jesus teaches about greatness in the passage that we read. In verse 30, we find them traveling quickly through uh, Galilee to Capernaum. Jesus doesn't want to pause, and, and he is no longer focused on ministering to the masses. He sees the future of his ministry wrapped up in the disciples who are gathered around them, and so they're trying to fly under the radar a little bit, and so they move quickly through Galilee, and they get to Capernaum, and, they, and Mark says they're in the house, and once they're in the house, Jesus uh, addresses a, a situation with them. He's given them the second passion prediction. The disciples have no clue what he's talking about. They heard him say that he's going to be betrayed and he's going to suffer and he's going to die. And after that, it kind of sounded like wah, 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 wah. they stopped listening after they heard death because the Messiah, they've, they've acknowledged that they believe Jesus is the Messiah, but in their minds, that means an earthly king who's going to take over the country and restore it. And so along with the king comes a military power and places of position in the administration. And so they're thinking in terms of earthly kingdom. And so when Jesus says, okay, yes, I'm the Messiah, you got it right. And then he says, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. Messiahs don't die like that. But Jesus hasn't set up the kingdom yet, so there's, there's a disconnect in their mind. Uh, a suffering servant was not in their vocabulary when you were describing what a king would look like. And so they hear betrayed, suffering, death, and they shut their hearing off. Even if they heard resurrection, they have no framework for what that looks like. People didn't just rise from the dead, and so they're, we, don't, we don't get that. So they don't understand, and they don't ask Jesus what he means because they are, Mark says, they were afraid. Now, why would they be afraid? Well, they could be afraid for Jesus. Like, no, we don't, we don't, want, we don't want you to die like that. So there could be some fear associated. So, you know, uh, we, there's a fear over what's going to happen to our master, it could be that they were afraid how Jesus would respond if they asked. Because back in chapter 8, at the first passion prediction, it didn't go so well. You know, Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him and said, this is not going to happen to you. Remember that time? And Jesus sternly rebuked him. He said, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. So they could be remembering, hey, you know what, the last time he talked about this, well... It didn't feel so good when we questioned him about it. So they could be afraid of how Jesus would, be, would respond. I really think that they were afraid for their own lives. Because in that day, if you proclaimed to be the Messiah, and there were people before Jesus who claimed that they were the Messiah, and it didn't go so well for them. The people who claimed to be Messiah, Rome viewed them as threats to the empire, and the Roman Empire, well, they had a pretty powerful military. 
And so anybody who said, yeah, I'm the Messiah, and had any kind of group behind them, well, the Romans took care of them. They killed them, and then they went after every single one of their followers and executed them too. So the disciples could be thinking in the back of their mind, um, Jesus, Messiah, we live in the Roman Empire, he said something about death, we're followers of his, that means, uh-oh, and I don't want to ask about that. Jesus, what do you mean? Are we going to die? So they're afraid, they're afraid to ask. And then we get to uh, verse 33 and 34, and they arrive at the house, and Jesus gathers them up, and, and he says, uh, hey, what were you arguing about on the road? And you could hear a pin drop. Uh, well, you answer the question. You know, so Jesus is there. He knows already what they're arguing about. I mean, in those days, um, you know, they didn't have, like, wide streets like we do. So they were more narrow paths. Think about a hiking trail uh, over uh, fairly rugged terrain. It wasn't really smoothed out roads necessarily the way that, that they would have traveled. And so the, the, the way it would go was Jesus, as the rabbi, as the teacher leader, he would be walking out front, leading them where they were going, and the disciples would be uh, lined up behind him, most likely in a single file line. And so along this journey, Mark says that they were arguing or handing the conversation up and down the line. Who is the best? You know, so just picture, you know, 12 guys competing about who's the best. They're having a little bit of an argument, a little bit of a tussle. And, and Peter's like, hey, Jesus gave me the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Remember that one? And they're like, yeah, but he also called you Satan, so you can make sure. And, you know, and they're pushing and shoving and trying to get in front of each other and... And they don't think that Jesus, who's just right over here, hears or sees any of this going on. I'm, he's probably like, oh, my goodness, and <clears throat> wanting to go, oh, my, we got more remedial work to do. Just wait till we get to that house. What were you guys arguing about along the way? Silence. They're, they're embarrassed. And I find it a little bit ironic that in just, what, a couple of verses ago, they were afraid. Why were they afraid? Because they were associated with Jesus, and if they were associated with Jesus and he goes down as Messiah and gets killed, then they're going to get killed as well. So they're, they're afraid of that, and then a verse later, they're arguing about who is the number one disciple. You see the irony there? We don't want this. We don't want to die, but you know what? I'm number one. I'm, I'm Jesus number one guy. And when he takes over his throne, I get the corner office. You know, James and John, in, in a couple weeks, uh, we, we're going to look at the story where they send their mom to Jesus. And she says, hey, when you enter into your kingdom, see my boys, James and John? How about they have seats on your right and left? It's an ongoing tussle that they have going on, and Jesus, he makes two really strong claims here. He, he's trying to define to them what greatness looks like in his kingdom, and he says, notice, notice how he acknowledges their desire. He says, whoever wants 
He knows what they want. He knows how they're understanding it. Whoever wants to be first, now notice, he, he acknowledges the desire, but then he gives them a requirement, an obligation. I know you don't like that word. Whoever desires to be first is obligated to be last, must be last of all, and it's implied must is obligated to be servant of all. Don't focus on yourself, focus on others. Don't work to serve yourself or have others serve you. Be a servant to other people, period. That's what greatness looks like in my kingdom. You desire greatness, but the requirement, the requirement is smallness. Now that is taking what the world offers us and turning it upside down. That is not how it works. That is not a picture of greatness, Jesus. The people who are great are the people who are at the top. And the people who are great are the ones who people line up to serve them. And Jesus says, no, you want, you want the greatness, but to get the greatness, the requirement is to be last. The requirement is to be a servant. Now, these disciples have been marching around the countryside, and they've been watching Jesus live his life. And the way Jesus lived his life was a perfect example of what he was talking about. Jesus lived his life for the sole purpose of giving it away to other people. And in the end, he gave his life literally. He died so that other people might be saved. Amen to that. Thank you, Lord. But it's mind-blowing. It's... Uh, it just turns the world's notions totally upside down. Challenges their own assumptions of what it meant to be the Messiah. And they believed that greatness was to be set apart over and above their own peers. Given the positions of power and privilege and position... Because the people who had those positions were the ones who made all the rules... They had all the power. They had all of the control. They were the ones who had the servants. They got all the perks. They had all of the status. And there's part of the disciples that are intoxicated by that desire. Oh, yeah. You know, when, when I get to this spot, people are going to line up to serve me. I'll have made it. That's what the world tells you. You, you climb the ladder... You get the best grades, you go to the best schools, you get the best jobs, and, and as you work your way up, your status grows and people line up to serve you. That's how it works. That's what we've bought into. That's what's creating a lot of depression in our culture because we're working so hard to get that. And Jesus says, that's not what it's about in my kingdom. So we get to verse 36. He gives them an object lesson. He takes a little child and he puts it among them. And I'm an English guy, uh, kind of a grammar freak. And um, yes, I own it. Um, there's a grammatical point of interest in the text to me. 
I, I know I can't press it too far because there wasn't any really, there wasn't really any punctuation. It was kind of implied in the, in the Greek text. Uh, but I find it interesting that right after Jesus teaches that to be first you must be last and must be a servant, Mark says he placed, he placed a child among them. So remember, it says he narrowed it down, he narrowed the crowd down, so there's 12 in Jesus, and they're probably, it says Jesus sat down to teach, and so they're kind of huddled in a circle, and Jesus notices in the house, hey, there's a little kid, hey, come on over here. He takes the little child, and he put, puts it in the middle, and at the end of that sentence, your translation might have a semicolon, or it might have a period. And in grammar, those are punctuation, that those are grammatical pauses, Right? So it's either the end of a sentence and there's a pause, or there's a semicolon, which is a, a longer pause, if you will, in the action. And so he takes the child, puts him in the middle, semicolon. How long is that pause? He has just taught them to be first, you must be last. To be uh, first, you must also be servant of all. That's how it works in my kingdom. Now, let me tell you about the child. The child in that society had zero status. The mortality rate was such that it, you know, if they lived into teenagehood and adulthood, uh, it was a small miracle. And so there were, the, the child, were, they were powerless. They had no status. They made no decisions. They had nothing to offer, really, is how they were viewed in society. So Jesus takes this poor powerless, helpless one, puts, puts right in the middle, semicolon. And the boys do nothing, right? None of them reached out to the little child and said, hey, how's your day going? What are you playing with over there? You want a snack? None of them, they're just looking at, what is... They're looking around at each other like, what does this have to do with anything that we're talking about, Jesus? And Jesus, after that semicolon, he takes the little child, and it says in his arms, but it literally means in the crook of his arm. He's sitting down. He takes the little child in the crook of his arm. He's ministering. He's serving that little one, and the disciples totally missed the object lesson. And then, and then what does he tell them? He says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. The positions of greatness in the kingdom are when you serve little ones who are representative of all the poor and the powerless. When you serve those people, you are welcoming me. He didn't tell them to have faith like a little child. That's a lot of times we get misconstrued reading of this text. He didn't say act like the child. What he said is whoever welcomes the child, whoever serves the child, whoever serves the helpless, those who can't help themselves, whoever serves these loved ones of God, welcomes me. But he doesn't stop there. He says, whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but God the Father, the one who sent me. Not only has Jesus told them that they should be servants of all, but he also gives them a, a picture of who they ought to be serving. Not the powerful, not the elite, 
not the rich, not the people that if you serve them, they have some means and mechanism to raise your status on the scale. He says, no, you serve the ones who can do nothing for you in return. And when you do that, you're welcoming me, and not just me, but God. Mark has given us this pretty powerful contrast between Jesus and the disciples. Jesus doesn't seek public notoriety, public acclaim. He lives his life to give it away to the little, the least, the lost, and the lonely. And the disciples want the glory. They don't want the cross. They want, they want to be the power brokers. They don't want to be the subjects. See, the risk for us, just like the risk for the disciples, is that their desire for position and for power and place in society uh, clouds their vision of, of understanding who Jesus is and what he's all about. When we think about such things in gaining place, we no longer have a picture of Christ that's accurate. See, following Jesus involves a transformation of character, and the disciples are on their way. We need to be fair to them because there's a lot of things that seem like code language to them. We sit on this side of the resurrection, so we can look back and say, wow, you guys were dense. But that wouldn't be totally fair because they didn't have any framework for understanding that. The disciples are followers on the outside. They literally, physically follow Jesus, but their character and their identity are still being uh, transformed along this journey, moving away from the way the world thinks to learning what it looks like and feels like uh, to live out what Jesus has been teaching them all along. So how do we live humbly in a me-first world? How do we do that? Well, there's not, there's not this real fancy, elaborate strategy to do so. It's learning to live like Jesus within and alongside the world. If you live an example that's opposite what the world, how the world thinks and lives, people will notice that. You serve other people right in the middle of the me first world. You lay aside your own place and privilege for the benefit of someone else. That's, that is the core of Jesus' message here. You, Jesus doesn't tell the disciples, hey, go off yonder and live like me where there's no other people or pressure to live otherwise. He says, no, you live smack dab in the middle of the world. There's no protective bubble that you enter. You need to follow me right in the middle of your daily life now. And you do that, you find the positions of greatness, you, you discover what greatness is in the kingdom by serving other people. So I want to give you a couple examples. Would that be helpful? And uh, I'm going to say these things, and I don't really care what the politically motivated answer is. So check your politics at the door. I'm just going to say these things. Because um, I recognize there's... Pros and cons on both sides. But every politically driven 
answer seeks exactly what the disciples wanted. Every politically driven answer seeks power, position, control to be served and to win. So, you know those kids down on the border that are kind of caught in the middle of our little border skirmish? The ones that were ripped apart from their families? You know those? Okay, it's not just me. Christians ought to be caring for them. They didn't make any choices on how they got there. They're poor, they're powerless, and they're being played like pawns on the political landscape, and it's flat out wrong. And the people of God should be the ones that are stepping in to figuring out how do we deal with that. You know all the women who have stepped forward because they've been abused? And we ought to be figuring out how do we minister to those women. How do we help them heal brokenness and hurt that happened to them? Maybe it's recent, maybe it's long ago. Christians ought to be taking the lead on that. And one way that we take the lead on that is we teach our young ones respect and proper treatment of other people. You know all the people who have suffered racial injustice and are talking about it? Yeah, we ought to be trying to figure out what a solution for that is. We ought to be, Christians ought to be the ones going and apologizing and saying, you know what, that is, that is no way to treat another human being. How can I help repair that relationship? You know, all the people who are trapped at the bottom of the socioeconomic system, who are being trampled on and oppressed, Christians ought to be the leaders in figuring out how, how do we deal with that? What are solutions? I don't have answers to all of these questions, but what I hear in Jesus when he says, if you want to seek greatness in my kingdom, then what you need, if you want to be first place, then you need to seek to be last. If you want greatness, it requires smallness. And to get to smallness, it means to subject yourself to being a servant of other people. Not motivated that, oh yes, I'm seeking greatness in the kingdom. No, because Jesus calls you to it and it's what we ought to be doing. See, Jesus doesn't squash the ambition or that competition that the disciples have going on, but he focuses all of their energy on striving to be great at things that actually matter to God following Jesus on his mission and participating in it is the true path to greatness. And Jesus says that serving all of these people are what counts as greatness in his kingdom. You know, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, it starts off, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we go out and we seek to serve people, what we are doing is we are saying what's happening in heaven can happen right here, right now on earth. And when you serve somebody else in the name of Christ, you are taking heaven and you are giving it to them right now. Because maybe they've never experienced the love and the grace and the mercy in their life before they had an encounter with you. 
We have an opportunity to bring a little bit of heaven to the people that Jesus has put right in front of us. All the people who are trampled by the power-grabbing, me-first folk in this world that we live in, and that's our mission, and I think we ought to be about it together. Are you in? Yes. That was a minority report. Are you in? Yes. Amen. Amen. Well, we have an exciting privilege today of uh, baptizing three people. Yeah, celebrate. Cheer. Um, and baptism is one of those things where there's a little, um, a little nervousness, a little anxiety that goes along with it. Because when you, when you have a personal moment in your walk with the Lord where you have acknowledged, yeah, I'm, I'm not doing such a good job of running my life on my own. I need to take... I need to get myself out of the way, and Lord, I need you to come in and rule my life and be my king. That happens in a personal moment. We make a, a decision. But to go public with that, especially through baptism, uh, that's a big step. And we go through baptism because well, one, Jesus was baptized, right? And if Jesus subjected himself to the waters of baptism, then why I think it's probably a good thing for us as well. <laughs> baptism is something that uh, symbolizes for the Christian person that we recognize that our, our old self was tarnished and unclean and dirty with sin. And when when we go down into the waters of baptism, there's some symbolism in it that we come up and Jesus has purified us. He's doing that transforming work in our lives. And I like how Paul uh, writes about baptism when he was instructing the Roman church. Uh, he says, uh, maybe if I'm in Romans 6 and not 5, that would be helpful. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are buried with Christ. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. When you become a follower of Christ and you have that moment of personal recognition that he is your Lord and your Savior. You have that moment at the foot of the cross, and when you go to that cross as broken and dirty and unclean, you leave a transformed person. You, you, you leave that cross differently than when you showed up. And baptism is one of those symbols of that. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for coming to do 
that work.